Welcome to Exhale Bible Discovery. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into the Bible, going line by line and chapter by chapter to discover the truths that God has for us in His Word. We are in Exhale Bible Discovery, and we are in John chapter 6. But John chapter 6 is a very long chapter, so I'm going to break this into two different lessons. John chapter 6 part 1 is going to be verses 1 through 24, and in part 2, we will finish this chapter out. So in our last lesson, we saw Jesus in the miracle of the mat and his revelation of his deity to the world. Such a beautiful lesson. And this week, we're going to look at Jesus's miracles by food and by foot. Chapter 6 of John begins to emphasize the unique person of Christ and his divine power and what this brings to all of us as believers. John chapter 6 addresses three different groups of people. One, people who are wowed by Jesus, and these were the people who were looking to Jesus to see what he could do for them. And then secondly, people who were flaky. These are people who were like interested in Jesus at first, and then they lost interest. And then the third type are people who are loyal and steadfast. This part of part one of chapter six is in two sections. Jesus' miracle by food, verses 1 through 15. And then the second part, Jesus' miracle by foot, verses 16 through 24. So, it was the time of Jewish Passover, which is in the spring. The grass was nice and green, and people enjoyed gathering outside. And because the word was out regarding what Jesus was doing, The crowds following him began to become very large, and no doubt Jesus had been pushing himself as he ministered, healed, taught, and guided his people. The news of John the Baptist's death had saddened Jesus very much and the disciples. Jesus and his disciples needed some rest and a retreat from his ministry. And because of the Passover, people from all over would have been coming to this area to convene for this special time. And there was a continued growing opposition now happening towards Jesus. The word was getting out about him. And because of this, this added additional stress. And so Jesus needed some time to escape and spend with God. He and the disciples were able to leave for their time of rest, and then they were met by a very large crowd. And so our study this week, we've explored the other three Gospels along with John regarding the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And we know there were actually more than 5,000 people as reference to this number spoke of, which were the men who were the heads of the households. Therefore, the plus women and children could have very well meant that there were over 10,000 people 
at this event. So imagine being at an event and needing to provide sustenance for this enormous crowd. And so we're going to break down this miracle. First, we're going to look at the training moment it had for his disciples. And Jesus could have easily fed this many people, but the way he went about providing for them provided a teaching opportunity for his disciples. And with this miracle, Jesus would entrust the complete cooperation from his disciples. Next, there was Philip's role. Why did Jesus ask Philip the question that seemed rhetorical? And it was because Jesus wanted to use this moment to guide Philip into a complete trust of him. Faced with an seemingly impossible situation, Jesus was guiding him into entrusting God for everything, even when it appears on a human level that this is not possible. That is a great lesson for us today, too. Next, there was Andrew's role. And most likely, Philip and Andrew were close friends. You can see John 12, 20 through 22. Andrew consistently is seen with an I can attitude. And he quickly responded to the challenge of no food with bringing the boy into the forefront. So let's look at the role of the boy. He exhibited obedience in just giving what he had. And although it appeared to be a meager offering, Jesus used it to glorify God. What a beautiful lesson that is. And then there was the miracle. Jesus organizes the event ahead of the miracle. He placed the people in the groups to receive the meal. And when he did that, he gave thanks. Jesus looks to God and gives him the recognition and thanks. And the disciples acted. They did this obediently to Jesus's instructions. And the people were filled. Through this simple meal, people were filled. Barley was a grain that poor people were accustomed to eating. They were given enough to satisfy each one of them. And it's interesting to note that barley is a grain rich in vitamins and minerals. And when cooked, it expands greatly and is very filling to the tummy. So it grew very easily in the area of Jerusalem. And so all that to say is Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Another important point is nothing was wasted. And although Jesus provided the people with their fill, he sets the example here of wasting nothing. Another great lesson. Then after this miracle, you can see that there was a brewing demand for Jesus. I mean, people were, the word was getting out and people were starting to get really anxious about him. And so all the while that this amazing event was happening, this, the people still wanted more from Jesus. They were clamoring for him to become their earthly king. And then we see where Jesus sends the crowd away. So Jesus needed to retreat. He recognized and emulated the importance of spending time alone with God. 
He needed to seek out time with God in prayer and solitude. And in this manner, he would be refueled by God's sustenance. He now needed his soul to be filled. So now this moves us into verses 16 through 24 of Jesus's miracle by foot. And so the story shifts from the needs of the people to the needs of the disciples. And as Jesus is spending time alone with his father, he knows his beloved disciples need him. Jesus, despite his time alone, recognizes that his followers, they need him. They need him desperately. And so here's how Jesus responds to the needs of the disciples. First, he went directly out to meet them where they were in the midst of their distress. And Jesus, secondly, appears in person to his disciples. Nothing else could help them. There was Jesus. And so then three, Jesus gives them a way out of their trouble. And then fourth, he provides them with a calmness that only he can provide. So Jesus teaches them to keep their eyes on him despite their troubles. And so there's so many lessons from the water here where Jesus walked on that water, calmed the boat. Jesus always had his eyes on his disciples, and this means us as well. He knows our trials and our tribulations, and he's there for us even when we don't recognize him. And Jesus will meet us right where we are in the midst of our storm. He will come to us, but we must keep our eyes firmly planted on Jesus as we navigate these storms. Because when we take our eyes off of him, it causes to lose our focus and to fall into fear. So you guys, we have to invite Jesus right there into our mess and calling upon him despite how we've messed things up and how we've were mired in that pit. He is there and he desires for us to invite him in and to join him. But We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. So how do you apply these truths to this first part of John 6? Do you feed on God's spiritual food daily? Do you allow his word to fill you like that barley? Two, how has God provided for you when you couldn't see a way out? Three, do you seek time alone with God on a regular basis? Four, can you describe a time when you took your eyes off of Jesus during a storm? And what were the results? And then five, are you spiritually prepared for the next storm in your life? How will you invite Jesus to join you in that trial? And then six, what do you need to do in order to walk with Jesus daily? Such an amazing set of lessons just in that first part of John 6. So now we're going to finish out this chapter in part two, and this will be John chapter 6, verses 25 through 71. And we have this in two different sections. First, we have Jesus teaches he is the bread of life, and that's verses 25 through 40. And then we have 
many reject this bread of life, 41 through 71. So the next day, those who were looking for Jesus, they found him on the other side of the lake. And from what appears to be a simple question of, hey, how did you get there? (laughs) Jesus once again sees an opportunity to expand his discourse regarding who he really is, his true identity. They had all just experienced this Passover, and they all knew that slain lamb atoned for their sins during the Passover. So the blood applied to the frame of their doorways, which was demonstrated during Moses' time, it always caused them to remember how they were passed over from death because of their sin. So Jesus goes into a very long discourse from verses 25 through 71, and these teachings are fundamental. And there's a, I call it the stage of three questions that Jesus asks, or it it says, well, they ask him. So they said, when did you get here? And Jesus has six main teaching points from this one question. He says, I tell you the truth, statement one, and it's used four times in John in verses 26, 32, 47, and 53, all in chapter six. Therefore, it is obvious Jesus is reminding them that what he was telling them was of extreme importance. They need to listen up and pay attention. When we see that, I tell you the truth in the Bible, pay attention. The next lesson is he knew their true motives. The people following him professed outwardly that they were seeking Jesus when in reality, they wanted what he could give them, which was material things, food, and the sensationalism of his miracles. He knew their motives. Thirdly, Jesus' response is in a negative tone. He says, do not work for food that spoils. And the apparent lesson is in seeking things of this world that are only temporary. They're going to go bad. They're not going to last. And then fourth, Jesus's positive tone says, instead, work for food that endures eternal life. So Jesus organized the event ahead of the miracle. He placed the people in groups to receive the meal and the food Jesus was offering. It had nothing to do with physical satisfaction. He's instructing them that the gift of his body is a gift and once accepted would give them life everlasting. Fifth lesson, Jesus gives them a promise. The son of man will give you. He says, we see the word give. Jesus gives them a promise. The son of man will give you, which clearly meant something was being given, not earned, a gift. And then the sixth lesson, being sealed by the father. He says, on him, God, the father has placed his seal of approval. And a seal in those days carried much weight. The king or leader placed a seal or signature from their signet ring, signifying a promise or oath that was promised and validated. And a signet 
It's a small seal, especially one set in a ring, was used instead or with a signature to give it authentication to an official document. So Jesus is telling us as believers with the promise from God as the authority given to him from God that he's giving believers this eternal life with him. He's promising it. He's sealing it. So then there's a next question. What must we do with the work God requires? And as humans, aren't we typically beginning to look at what do we need to do for God? We tend to look for merit badges, which leads to legalism. And Jesus responds by saying this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It really is that simple. Belief in Christ is the only requirement for eternal life. For many then, and for many today, they want it to be more difficult. Man tends to want to be rewarded for the things they do on this earth. And while there's nothing wrong with dedicating your life to Christ and then having an outward change resulting in those works for the kingdom, what Christ is teaching all of us is that it's simple faith. That's all that's needed. And of course, an authentic life that has been changed by this belief, it absolutely should reflect Jesus. This is a changed life because of him. And so your life as a believer should be transformed daily to be more like him. That's called the sanctification process. Then there was a third question. What miraculous sign will you give that we may see and believe you? (laughs) And Jesus had just redirected them that he was the father. He's telling them of his divine authority. He had the power to do God's work. And in response, the people naturally went to the point regarding Moses. Moses had given the Israelites manna or bread from heaven. Every day they had it. And here they're challenging Jesus to provide them with this so-called manna or bread right then and there because they wanted to see it, prove to us. How many people still today won't believe in Christ because they cannot see him with their own eyes or they don't see a miracle from God? How many people go to God and say things like, God, if you'll only do this or that, then I will follow you. And Jesus replies them with another, I tell you the truth. And he answers them by telling them it was God and not Moses that supplied the manna because manna was a gift from God that would spoil if they left it out. Exodus 16 shares this story of manna from heaven. 16.4 of Exodus, it says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The Israelites were only to collect what they needed for six days And they were not to receive it on the seventh day, as this was the Sabbath, or rest from work. And then Exodus 16.23, it actually is the first mention of a Sabbath day in the Bible. I thought that was interesting. Exodus 16.20 tells how those who disobeyed and kept hordes of the manna until morning, that in the morning it would be full of maggots and would smell. It would rot. 
yuck. What a lesson that we too must begin our day with new words from God. And this points to the importance of seeking Him daily for our daily bread and spiritual sustenance. So back to John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And the I am statement is a clear message of who he is, that he is God and he is from God. And he's offering himself as the life giver. The I am comment is shown three times in this chapter in verses 35, 48, and 51. Next, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And once again, it's another promise that once we accept him, we are his forever. Nothing we can ever do will change this. And then the fourth thing he says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And this is the part that requires action on the part of the believer. Because that action is, we've got to believe. We've got to believe in what he said, that he is the Christ. So our next section is, many reject this bread of life. And this takes us to from verses 41 to the very last verse in chapter 6 of 71. And so the first part of this discourse focused on Jesus's answer to the question posed to him. And now we're going to see a shift in attitude by those hearing these teachings. And we know the Jews opposed Jesus's claim that he came from heaven and that he had the sole authority to grant everlasting life. They questioned his origins as they only knew him to have an earthly mother and father. And so here we have another negative and positive response from Jesus. His negative response is he calls them out on their grumbling. And he again reminds them no one can come to the father unless his father who sent him draws him near. And so drawing means receiving, a stirring, a prompting in one's heart to hear God. And this alone is God's job. And it's his right to choose whomever he wants because he's God. And guess what? We are not. We can never know all of his ways. And so therefore, if your heart is stirred, and yes, it absolutely has been stirred if you are studying his word, you are being drawn to him. What an honor this is. And Jesus understood unbelief because unbelief stems from refusing God's call or his draw. Many hear it or feel it, yet they still refuse to choose to believe because it is a choice. The next thing is unbelief rejects the teachings and the life of Jesus. The ways of the Lord are indeed mysterious and often difficult to fully understand. And again, we have to remember we're not God. We have finite minds, and therefore, belief requires faith. And then unbelief rejects Jesus entirely. When people truly say, nope, I'm not going to believe in Jesus, they no longer recognize 
or going to feel God's call. They essentially become hardened to God. And much like the lesson from Moses regarding Pharaoh, the scripture regarded Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And a Jewish midrash or interpretation or illustration asks us to picture two farmers. The first farmer cultivates his land with great care. The rain comes, the sun shines, the crops grow, and the second farmer refuses to work his land. The rain comes, the ground turns to mud, the sun shines, the ground becomes hard as clay. And in a genuine sense, God hardened the second farmer's land by sending the rain and then making the sunshine. But the farmer also ruined his land because he didn't do anything. He didn't work the land. And there's a fifth century Christian commentator named Theodoret who offered this wisdom. The sun, by the force of its heat, moistens the wax and dries the clay, softening the one and hardening the other. The widely accepted Jewish and Christian view is that when a person continually rejects God, their heart becomes harder and harder, even when God continues to reach out to them in love. And as one scholar observes, when the divine command came to Pharaoh, set the slaves free, his reply was, I will not. Each time Pharaoh's continued to say no, his heart was hardened and he became more dull and more feeble as his heart grew harder. And so the positive response from Jesus is a believer receives everlasting life. Jesus opens with, I tell you the truth. He is stating fact, not fluff. And a believer, guess what? We're not going to die. We're going to live forever. Everlasting means just that, forever. And eating of his bread, Jesus, he provides the eternal food for us who believe. And the believer receives Christ as his sacrificial lamb of God. He says, this bread is my flesh and I will give for the life of the world, this flesh, this bread. This is pointing to his future death on the cross. And again, the discussion becomes even more impassioned and intense, beginning with verse 52. Jesus responds by expanding upon his teachings and now discussing both his flesh and his blood. And so imagine back then trying to wrap your mind around this difficult topic. It must have sounded barbaric to them, but today many feel the same way when they don't understand the true meaning of what this is. So to drink his blood, we have to understand that the Jewish people were forbidden to drink any blood of an animal because it represented the life of the animal. Therefore, the drinking of Jesus' blood appeared to go against this rule, and it had to seem preposterous. But Jesus' blood was foretelling of the time on the cross that they had no idea of. Later, they would connect the dots. As he was telling them this, Jesus was pointing to that sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed to atone for the people's sins. This act they were familiar with. And the shedding of blood means death. 
In order for humans to receive eternal life, blood had to be shed. And in our case, as Christians, Christ chose to take this place for us and shed his perfect blood for us. And when we drink his blood, we are reminded of this sacrifice on the cross and that he did this specifically for each of us to be forgiven of our sins. And we do this symbolically when we take the elements. So eating his flesh, and the word flesh in scripture has many meanings. It can mean the fallen sinful nature of man. And with Jesus, his flesh represents a perfect and sinless human form sent from God. And as believers, when we feed on his flesh, we are filling ourselves with his divine nature, his ways, his redemption for our sins. And so as we must physically eat to stay alive on this earth, we must also physically feed on God's word to fill us with this word and his teachings. And so these final verses in 60 through 71, they're a turning point for the disciples and for us today. And it's a critical decision point. Will you believe or are you going to reject Jesus' teachings? The disciples say, gosh, who can accept this? And what they are saying is they don't choose to accept it. It's unacceptable to them and offensive. And this was not the Messiah that they were looking for because they had an image of a Messiah who was supposed to look like this radiant king riding in on a fancy horse. But so they were missing seeing the true Messiah standing right there in front of them. And how many today have created God or Jesus to be something other? In our finite minds, people want to imagine God as something he is not. They have not taken the time to read his word and to spend time with him in order to recognize him for who he was. And guess what? You can't get to know someone if you don't spend time with them. And because of these painful truths, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is found in verse 66. How heartbreaking this must be for our father to have been rejected and to continue to be rejected by those who once claimed to follow him who say no more. He knows the consequences far better than they do, and his heart must break each time one of his children rejects him. And so many people jump on the Christian bandwagon for many reasons. Initially, they may may be drawn to the fellowship, the music, the programs, but when they are required to live differently, to give up things that are not pleasing to God, many make the decision that his ways and teachings are too hard and they turn away. Do you reject any of God's teachings? Are his instructions too hard? And have you fully resigned your crisis of belief to really truly follow him or to not follow him? Because guess what? There's no middle ground. So your application questions. One, regarding daily bread, how are you feeding upon his word daily? And if not, how can you make time for him? Two, are you waiting on a sign from God like the people in Jesus's time? Do you need to see him do something miraculous in order to believe? Three, how has God drawn himself to you and how have you responded? And four, be honest with yourself. 
are there areas of his word or teachings that are hard? They're hard to understand. Well, go to him openly and honestly with your concerns because he will show up for you. Five, how have you chosen to live differently as you continue to grow closer to Jesus? And are these changes visible to other people? And six, ask God to show you areas of your faith walk that need to be strengthened because he will show you when you are ready and he will guide you. Be sure to visit my website, drpaulamcdonald.com, click on podcast, and then exhale Bible discovery for self-study guides and resources to support you with each episode. 